0: Welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Welcome back to Note Doctors a music theory and pedagogy podcast. So today we have a kind of a unique guest because we have Sean Powell who is a professor in music education, but he has written a book that I totally nerded out and so I apologize if during this interview I sound a little bit like a fanboy, but I really enjoyed <laughs> reading this book. That was good. Um and, and um and actually thinking about it in light of our summer book club which was on Phil Yule's uh, book on music theory, which was challenging basically, you know, this ideology of this white racial frame. I think Sean's book on the ideology uh, of music competition uh, is works really well in thinking about, you know, these systems that are kind of in the background that are informing and mm-hmm. um, creating these assumptions and biases within us, oftentimes unconsciously. So I think uh, talking about his book and his kind of philosophical bent towards it, I think works nicely as a, as a continuation of thinking about some of the things that uh, Ewell talks about in his own book. But uh, before we get into the conversation, let's learn a little bit more about uh, Dr. Powell uh, from none other than Ben, his colleague at
1: uh, UNT. Yes, thank you, Paul. Sean Powell is Professor of Music Education and Chair of the Division of Music Education at the University of North Texas. He also serves as Chair of the Society for Music Teacher Education. Dr. Powell is the author of The Ideology of Competition in School Music and Co-Editor of Sociological Thinking in Music Education, both of which are published by Oxford University Press.
2: And so the guiding principle for me is just what do students need in your community, in your class? Not what do students the world over need, but what are your students, your actual students, the people breathing air in your room need? And it's up to you to figure that out as a professional. And that could change, and you could guess wrong, and you have to change again. I also don't think it means, like, just take a vote, and whatever your students say they want to do, just do that. Like, I don't, I think that's shirking your responsibility as an educator, because I think I do think you have to take into account students' cultures and lives and what they're interested in, but if that's all you're doing, you're not moving them forward into new things and educating them into new realms of learning and understanding. So I think it has to all work together, which is a really complex tangly answer, but I think that's the I think if anybody gives
0: you things something more simple, just do this and it's all good, I think it's just not gonna work so Sean, we are so happy to have you on our podcast. Um, you are a real music educator. You know, we're, we're theorists though. Ben and Jen both have music education degrees. I have none. And so I'm just, you know, a poser here pretending to be an educator. Um, but we're really excited to talk with you, um, about, I personally am really excited to talk with you about your book because it just, it, um, well, I should say the title of it, The Ideology of Competition in School Music. Um, Because I'll just say right off the bat, so my wife is a middle school choir director, and so she's been teaching in Texas for like 17 years. Um, So we have lived the uh, competitive music education life. I've been an accompanist for dozens of contests and competitions, So, and I've always been very critical of it. And then you also meld in this like postmodern critique. And so like, I'm like loving every second of it. I mean, you had me at Zizek. I mean, I was like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go there. (laughs) Um, But before we get into that, tell us a little bit about how you kind of got started in music. You know, people don't generally start into music thinking that they want to be a professor or things like that. But how did you get started? And maybe um, how did you get to where you're at?
2: Cool. Well, first, thanks for having me. I'm really honored to be here. Um, I really appreciate your interest in the topic and the book, and it's just, it's a cool thing. So thanks. Great to be here. So yeah, um, well, I, I grew up in Tennessee. I grew up in a small town, a, co- a small college town about an hour east of Nashville named Cookville, Tennessee. And, um, you know, i always liked music as a kid, like a lot of kids do. Um, took piano lessons... Uh, against my will as a a little (laughs) kid and you know that's the thing like with my own kids now I'm wondering like how do we get them into music without making them like be resistant to it it's
3: Mm -hmm. something that they
2: have to do anyway we'll cross that bridge soon I'm sure Uh, but then uh, when I was starting into middle school or junior high as we called it then um, I got interested in wanting to join band because I saw the the middle school band played at my elementary school. So if you're a band director out there, do that, because it gets kids <laughs> interested. Uh, and I thought the instruments were really cool, and it looked cool, and I liked the sound of it. So I joined school in, uh, I in, joined band in junior high, and I was a saxophonist. And um, I was just a band kid all through and through. Like, mm-hmm. I just fell in love with band. Band was my favorite part about school. Band was really the only, I think, uh Thing in school that was really challenging and I had to really really work hard to be good at and so I just you know it, I think a lot of our music ed undergrads were this way it's like we just liked it so much we just wanted to keep doing it like we didn't want to stop doing it once school was over and so why not just make it our jobs and just do that kind of thing and so I majored in music ed in college uh, and then I was a band director in Tennessee and unlike uh, the high powered Texas system I have here, I was the, I taught in a rural school district and I was both the middle school and high school band director. Hmm. And so I taught the beginners in the morning and then I was teaching the, the high school band and the marching band and everything in the afternoon. And so I did five days a week, both schools, commuted between both schools and was the band director for the whole program, top to bottom. Uh, so I got the full experience of <laughs> teaching band. Uh, After I did that for a while, I uh, got a master's degree in conducting, actually, from Illinois State. And then I went straight into a doctoral program in music at the University of Illinois. And my original plan was I wanted to be like a wind band conductor at the college level. I really love band. I love band literature. I love conducting. I still like conducting. Um, But uh, I think it's just... uh, you know, Providence, that Illinois at the time did not have a DMA program in wind conducting. Hmm. So if you wanted to study conducting at the uh, band conducting at Illinois at that time, you were a music ed major who sort of specialized in conducting. And I'm so happy that that was the case because I got into research class, and I started to learn all this stuff about research and scholarship, and it just pulled me in. and I realized I'm really interested in it. I'm pretty good at it. I can write. I like doing it, and uh, so, you know, if you're out there and you're a college student, you just never know where life's going to take you and what paths you may go down and just be open to it. I think that's cool. Uh, So then I started my higher ed career in uh, Georgia at Columbus State University, the Schwob School of Music. I was there for six years, and this is actually year 10 at UNT, which is hard for me to believe,
0: but it's been awesome. Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, everyone we interview has this very circuitous route to where they they uh are now and generally n- maybe just one, I can think that was like, I'm going to do this. And that's what they're currently doing. It's always, they get into music for something else. And then they find theory or performance or education later on after a Mm -hmm. while. So that's great. So what motivated you then to write this book, which is, as I mentioned before, kind of this critique of not really music education, but specifically this competitive side of music education which is perhaps what music education is now in the United States we can make that right. <laughs> discussion as well but what motivated you to write this book? So um, really my personal experience like the whole
2: idea behind this book is it's just what, what my experience has been in the field of music ed and uh, you know I, it's not like I had this <clears throat> long-term career goal to write a book. And in our field in music education, I think most people would say that we're a journal field, not a book field. Mm -hmm. So if you're a music historian or something, I think it's expected that you will write a book at some point, at least one. In music education, there are many, many, I would say the majority of my colleagues in my field don't write books ever. It's mostly just journal articles and smaller scale studies. So it wasn't like, you know, I started off saying, well, someday I'm going to write a book, you know. Uh, But... um, the more I had experience with this, and the more I thought about it, the more I talked to folks about it, uh, and the more I realized, even though there are there is some scholarship on competition in our field, compared to the role it plays, I think in our field, it's that's a very small a small amount of scholarship compared to the role it plays, and so I just thought there was a gap there. I thought there was something that needed to be said, and my experience as a student. In school music and then my experience as a music ed major and then my experience as a public school teacher and now my experience as a teacher educator competition was the common thread that just strung all the way through those things Mm -hmm. uh and i just thought you know i think it's time that someone takes a a, kind of a larger scale reflection on this issue and see uh see if we can unpack what's going on and how we can maybe reframe things Mm -hmm. so um I don't know, it's cliched to say that uh, I had no choice, like this topic came up and I just had no choice to write, but I kind of almost feel that way, in a way, I just felt like (laughs) this is my job to do this, I'm in a position where I can kind of see it here, I'm in uh, a state and a school where we're kind of at the apex of this issue, and I just felt, yeah. if not me, who, so I did it.
3: Yeah. yeah, I I similarly moved to Texas from somewhere else. I grew up in Pennsylvania and then I went to school in Ohio for music ed, and in Pennsylvania in my like growing up years, with, there were competitions, but it was not really that central to what we did day in and day out in school. Mm-hmm. Um like individually we could choose to go try out for regions or all state or whatever but like our whole band did not compete almost ever for anything. Mm. Um, So when I moved to Texas, I was like, what is happening down here? This is crazy. Like everyone is competing all the time. And that is the like focus of what they do. And I think it really, well, as you know, it changes the way that students experience music in school it changes the way that it changes really the like goal of music education in schools. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. One thing that struck me about reading kind of the beginning part of your book, Sean, I don't want to get too much into the weeds, obviously, but you really make a distinction with your interpretation of what is competition Mm -hmm. as, you know, anything that places the students in I think what you say is like a hierarchical relationship, to one another, and that's kind of an important, you know, premise to state up front at the beginning, and I thought back on my formative years, just like probably Jen and Paul did while reading, and I think many people will when they read your book, it's like, yeah, you do tend to associate your performance at your all-county audition, or your all-state audition, or even as a band, you know, you're like, you're placing your value on your own This one day, this one blip moment in time, Mm -hmm. and I think we've all had those moments as musicians where we're like, oh my gosh, this is a value judgment on my musicianship. And it's the complete opposite. It's, It's not at all a judgment of your musicianship, your work to that point, anything. It's literally just this one time that you played this one little excerpt for probably one person. Like in my case, growing up in Maryland, it was just one person. That would be the trumpet judge and you would all play and that person would make a list of all county and who, who was in the band that year. And it's like, it's just completely false and it carries on. I mean, one of the things I tried to emphasize last year to the freshmen, just in theory one here, is that like, One experience doesn't define you like failure is not failure. Everyone, Paul and Jen know I love to say failure is not failure. But it's true that like you can't let yourself hang on and like just even just thinking about what is competition. Yeah, it's placing people in this into these hierarchies that create artificial value judgment and all these different things that just are not healthy to have around in our minds on a daily basis. I probably said too much already, but I don't want to make this about me. It's about your book, but that resonated with me a lot. Just that very beginning part, you know? Right. Thanks.
0: Yeah. So what kind of led you to take kind of this more kind of philosophical approach? Because one could imagine that, um, you could write this book where you're just focusing on the outcomes that are clearly showing that these competitions are biased or there are these um, uh, inconsistencies or inequities. Right. Uh, I think somewhere you wrote how like the top bands uh, in these in the marching band competitions, like they're they're from these towns and places that the median income is exceptionally higher than the normal, right? So, right. Oh, yeah. you, know, you know, richer schools do better in these things. And so you could have done that, but you chose this kind of more philosophical approach where you're focusing on the ideology, kind of like what is really behind the scenes. And so what led you to take that, mm-hmm. that type of approach? That's a great question.
2: So um, yeah, in the first chapter, actually, I actually sort of posed that question to myself and then try to answer it. So uh, the first in the first chapter in the first part of the book, I, I go through like the literature on competition, which, as I said, there's some great literature out there, but it's not. It doesn't take long because there's really not a whole lot that's been done. Um, I think there's a few reasons for that. I think some people don't want to really question uh, things. Anyway, sidebar. Mm-hmm. Talk about that later if you want. <laughs> um, but <clears throat> you know, I sort of I sort of have a a, a a little paragraph in the first chapter that says. Uh, if I thought that presenting all these facts and statistics about how like, we can explain almost half the variance of scores in a competition based on the income of the community from yeah. which the school comes, it's true. I mean, yeah. you could just, here it is. You can't really argue <laughs> it. It's there, right? Uh, how, much, how much wealthier schools that are in state and national final competitions, how much wealthier they are than the state average, how much more their boosters raise... Than schools that don't. And the the interesting thing there is like a wealthier school's boosters raise more. <laughs> so like they already have more money, and then they can get even more money because their booster program can raise more mm-hmm. on top of it anyway. So, but you know, I, I talk about the difference between facts and meaning. And I sort of relate it to things like climate change or COVID or anything else you want to name. We could talk about election results, whatever. Where you can just say, here are Here's a researcher who's got credentials and has spent time finding out what the like, statistical facts are about this thing. Uh, that uh, since the Industrial Revolution, we've had exponential rise in uh, global temperatures. Or if you get a vaccine, you're this less, much less likely to be hospitalized with a given disease, whatever. But yet, people still do things... Knowing that, and even if they, so there's a lot of people who just won't believe that that's true, okay? Mm -hmm. But even people that do believe that's true and go, yes, I accept that that's true, still will act in contrary Mm -hmm. ways to what that evidence is telling them to do, right? Mm -hmm. Despite that. And so I find that when I talk to band directors or even like college students that and then tell them, hey, you know, wealthy, look at this, wealthier schools do way better. They're like, yeah, of course. I mean, they know this. (laughs) It's obvious. Like they, no one, need, you know, the study is important, but it wasn't really necessary for people to realize that that's what's happening. I mean, we can mm-hmm. see what are the schools that are in the top ten. Oh, it's those schools, right? Okay. Like so, people know that this is happening, and they know that uh, schools with uh, lower incomes or that are from certain geographical areas or have certain demographic makeups are at a distinct systematic disadvantage. They know it, but they go, "Well, but yeah, okay, but we still have to do this." Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, for me, fat, bare facts by themselves don't create meaning. I think, and for me, philosophy and theory can use that information to create a meaning for someone. To, to help us think critically about, okay, this is the facts, but why are they the facts? What else might be an alternative to doing things where these facts could change? Um, and I guess it's up to you, the reader, if I did a good job of, of employing <laughs> philosophy to that end. But that, that's why, you know, it could have just been a 20 page article saying, hey, here are all the facts about competition and be done. It'd be a lot easier spent <laughs> spend less time in my life thinking about it. But um, I don't think it would have really moved the needle because we kind of already know this stuff anyway.
3: Mm-hmm. I yeah. just love what you said. And it's such a good argument, even for like a liberal arts education. Like you need to understand philosophy and history and English and interpretation and all of those things to understand facts and to make meaning from them. And music theory to make meaning from what we do in music, you know, that's right. really phenomenal. And yet that's so,
2: what's being cut and deemphasized. Huh? Interesting.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you, you make this very bold statement that it's easier to imagine the end of music education than the end of competition. And how did we end up there? Like, how are we at that point? How did this become such a part of music education in our country?
2: Well, I think it's because we've, we've blended the two into one thing. And so I sort of make the analogy, um, you know, well, I think, I think a lot of times our music ensembles, our music programs and schools have become sports teams that just make sound waves instead of hitting each other. Like (laughs) it's basically the same idea. And um actually, there was just a just two days ago the the journal Teaching Music published an article, and it was sort of about competition and like, What's it called? Putting the fest back in festivals, or putting the fun back in festivals, something like that. You can look it up. It's in the <laughs> new teaching music, but it sort of had, It quotes some of my book, and it quotes some other scholars that are critical, and then it has like a page of like the counterpoint, and people are saying this is why competition's good. And one of the people actually says we're coaches, and it's like a sports team. So it's like, it's not like it's not like this is some secret where we're like we're really operating like a sports team, but we're pretending not to be. Some people are explicitly saying,
3: yeah.
2: music sport. Right? And even hear like, the sport of the arts is, like, an actual thing. So, and that's fine. Hey, I actually, I actually respect that because then you're just being honest about what you're doing. I actually, if more people would do that, I would actually, I think that's fine, to be honest. Um, but so I think if you, if you went to the football coach and said, hey, I want you to keep playing football. I want you to keep teaching these students the skills of football and the values of football. But let's not play games anymore or keep score that would just be absurd like that would be ridiculous and they're like well the point of football is to play games and to compete against another team that's the whole reason it exists right but i think music has has now adopted that right i mean if i went to most march and and i'm talking about myself like when i was a marching band director it's it's so i am the person that i'm addressing in this book really like so if i go to myself when i was a marching band director said hey still do marching band, still learn the show, still clean the drill and make it really good, but just don't, like on Saturdays, just stay home. Like don't go to the festival, the competition. And I would think, why are we doing it then? What's the point of all this, right? Okay. So there's that. I think the purposes have just been, maybe we'll talk about what is the aim of music education <laughs> if it's not that later. Yeah. But I think that's become the aim in many places. It's just like competing is the reason we practice and we get good is so we can do well. Uh, in competitions. I, I think besides uh, that, it's at the advocacy piece. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of people say, look, I wish we didn't really have to do all of these competitions and like it's the long hours and it's we've got to really focus and it's high stakes. But if I don't do this, I'm not going to get support from my administration. We're going to mm-hmm. cut positions. They're not going to celebrate us the way they celebrate us. And I'm scared. Mm-hmm. That if I say, look, I want to do band and I th- or choir or orchestra or whatever it is, and I want to teach musical values or whatever I want to do, but competition for me is cl- crowding out the things I really want to teach. And I want to tell my principal that, hey, I want to pull back on these or maybe not do them or whatever. I'm afraid they're not going to understand. I'm afraid that they just see me as another one of the sports teams, Another thing that the mm-hmm. school can take pride in to fill the trophy case in the front hallway. And if I do that i'm just risking and the thing is that's totally legitimate fear because i think they're probably right Mm -hmm. in most cases i mean i think that's totally legitimate Mm -hmm. and so that's why i talk about how this cannot be an individual like me as an individual in a school can't just stop doing competitions because i think that is risky and i think it's not going to be taken well by either your administration or your parents or your students or your peers in the profession And I think it's why it has to be a collective effort where everybody gets together and makes a statement that we are all as a collective profession going to change the parameters by which we evaluate ourselves and how we value what we do, uh, which is slow and incremental and takes a lot of work and we can't just do it tomorrow morning, Mm -hmm. right? But I think that's it. I think it's just we've conflated the aims or we've... We don't know what the aim is, so here's a name that's re- easy to understand and it's ready to go, and also the advocacy piece and the fear of a lack of support for if we don't do these external things.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, yeah, I do think we're seeing in high schools, at least. My my sister is a high school choir director, and I know that she obviously has a high school choir that she helps with, but now the majority of her day is teaching class piano and class guitar and there's a huge demand for those classes and the students are now begging her to create a second semester of both of those so that they can you know continue studying continue learning and so i think there is this kind of grassroots so to speak thing Mm -hmm. thing happening with students where they're like i don't want to do that i just want to learn how to play something You know, oh, I think that
2: tells us a lot. I think that we need to listen to that. I think that speaks loudly about, and I don't think we want. Look, I'm a band person. I'm a band director. I was there, but I don't want to think that. Oh, maybe students value these other things more and get more out of it. That makes me not feel good, but (laughs) it might be the truth, right? It might be real.
3: Well, and a lot of those kids are in band or choir. Sure, I know. You know, one of my nephews ended up doing both piano and guitar with his mom. Poor kid. But um, she's a great teacher, so I'm sure it was great. But, you know, he's he's a sax player and he's great at it. He's in the jazz band. He's in the rock band. He's in the, you know, the band band, so to speak. He does all that stuff. But he was like, I want to build these other skills. Um, And he's going to school for sports management. He loves competition. So
2: and ironically, I do, too. Like yep. we were talking before we started recording, I'm a rabid Cubs fan. I love, <laughs> I love that stuff. I love competition, and so for me, it's not competition itself. It's using it as a as a stand in for like education, evaluation, and the aims of what we're doing. Um, I think the aims of the Chicago Cubs should be to win, and I hope they, <laughs> I hope they do that more frequently. But the aims of them, or even the aims of like a drunk whore are not the same as the aims of a school band. I don't think right. should be. Right.
1: Right. It's a really important distinction. Yeah, I was definitely watching Flow Marching last night, many of my students in the Flow Marching, and I thought about that. And, you know, are the Blue Devils really one uh, ninth of a point uh, better than the blue coats or something like that, you know, and I thought, how did they possibly determine a 95.4 versus a 94.6, you know, when it comes down to that final number? and You know, but it seems like, man, you know, they're cleaning that drill with the purpose of getting to the 95.4, not the 94.6. You know,
2: interestingly enough, the drum corps uh, on the pandemic a couple of years ago they had a season, but they didn't compete. There was no scoring. And apparently it was still good,
1: Right.
2: and <laughs> and uh, the shows were great and like i saw a panel on competition and and one of the guys said like well some people thought oh, it was so great maybe we should just keep it that way and then they go oh but no of course that's ridiculous why would we <laughs> which is like that's that's to see the easier to imagine right uh, thing it's like right. well see, well now that we're back out out of the pandemic in quotes we mm-hmm. can just why would we why would we keep that that was too fun and relaxing let's get back to mm-hmm. pressure right but that's <laughs>
0: Well, that takes you back to uh, the one chapter where you talk about the lack and how these competitions or these trophies, um, drive this desire in us that is, is you, you can never, um, achieve it, right? Once you get that trophy or whatever, it's, you find that it's not as valuable as you thought it was. And then the next thing becomes your desire and you know, I think that's something really helpful, I think, for all of us to think about is how we place this object, right? This th- We have this object kind of missing in our being, right? Or at least mm-hmm. that's what the philosophers kind of argue. Um, and that, you know, we have to compete so that maybe that, that trophy or that that score or that achievement or whatever it is, that's going to fill us up. And then, of course, it never does, but it keeps us on this cycle, you know? Yeah. Yeah,
2: I mean, yeah, you nailed it, man You, just, you explained it super well, that's great <laughs> <But> <laughs> A
0: little like, psychoanalysis this morning, it's great Right, yeah. I mean, but like, that is I mean, how how have you as, as you've explained that or if you have explained that maybe in your classrooms do students go like holy crap, that's true, right? Well, I
2: feel like most people intuitively say like, oh, right Yeah, <laughs> and, and like but I think the thing that's complex about it and what makes it tricky is like we can't stop doing that. Of course, mm-hmm. Well, okay, if we're buying the psychoanalytic theory that I'm using here, um, you can't stop desire like it, unless until you die, right? Because mm-hmm. that's just what defines us as subjects. We're desiring beings. Mm-hmm. And so, and we probably don't want to because like it sort of propels us to act in the world, right? But on the other hand, the thing that we desire doesn't have to be there's no like predefined, this is the thing that net human nature tells us we have to do. We mistake it for that, right? So when you hear, oh, it's just human nature to be competitive, there's no point in fighting it because that's just what human beings are. It's just we've evolved to be competitive beings. And I would call that ideology. That's the word. It's something, ideology in brief, I think it's something we believe is just true about the world, just objectively true, but really is it's just constricted. It's a fantasy that we tell ourselves because, you know, if we think about existentialist, we don't have any, you know, like a priori uh, thing that we are. Mm-hmm. We create it for ourselves, which is terrifying and scary. And so instead of having that like abyss of just infinite possibility, we want to narrow down to something that we can focus on and achieve that's concrete. And, but I think just recognizing that and saying, okay, look, I feel I have to do this and I feel it's human nature and I feel like even if I don't want to, it's just something that compels me. I think you can redirect that desire into other things that maybe are more or less just corrosive or destructive. Yeah. And maybe not so narrow, right? I think, Or multiple things rather than just one thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's an Oscar Wilde quote. This goes something like, the only thing worse than... Uh, not getting what you want is getting it. yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's that's that that as long as you can't get it, you know, you can drive and you can strive and for it, but once you get it, you're like, oh, and I think that's you mentioned that in your book is that even the folks who don't achieve, you know um, the the top scores or things like that, are still driven, right? Even if they don't get, ever get that top score or or whatever, they still have that drive that pushes them towards that. Right?
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, so to get into it a little bit, what we desire is really to desire. Yeah. Okay. Like we, we think what we desire is the the thing we're going after, but not really, because once we get it, we go, ah,
0: Mm.
2: what's the next thing? Like what we want to do is keep the desire going Rather than just saying, getting, like, because we can never, ever get something and go, okay, well, I'm done. I'm, life's perfect. I'm set. I don't need anything else. I'm totally content. But we we have to think that that's possible, right? We have to think, like, okay, if I get first place at this competition, then I can relax. I'll be satisfied. Right. If I get this job at this school, I'll be relaxed. and Like, we think that's going to happen and it never happens, right? Right.
0: Yeah. And that's what this, competi- or this uh, our capitalist culture depends on us believing, right?
2: <laughs> well, that's why then... capitalism is so powerful because yeah. that's how it works.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Like the next commodity, the next thing is going to be the thing that, uh, you know, my 50-inch, I just got a, I got a steal on a big TV that my former student was selling, which I feel happy about. <laughs> but I had to be like, okay, I realize like, okay, this TV is bigger and better than the old one. But once I start watching this TV, I'm going to think, wow, man, wouldn't a 75-inch be even sweeter? <laughs> like,
0: that's what's going to happen, right? That's right, because <laughs> you're going to be seeing that 74-inch TV advertised on your 50-inch TV. Like, that's oh, right. I'm like, man.
2: wow, this is <laughs> yep. awesome, and it's better, but it could even get better, right? That's yeah. how it works. Yeah.
3: I remember when I was wrapping up my doctorate, I was in my first year in my current job. And my boss, who is also a good friend and a wonderful person, was like, hey, I just want to warn you that when you finish, you think that you're going to feel like really great. But I myself was depressed for a while. (laughs) And I was like, at the time, I was like, rude. (laughs) Like, I don't want to think about that right now. (laughs) And then I got to the end and I was so glad he said that to me because I remember this feeling of like, okay, so what now? Like, I've been working for this Ph.D. my entire life. Basically, I never stopped. I started school in kindergarten Mm -hmm. and then I eventually got a Ph.D. I never not went to school in that time, you know? Yeah. And like, yeah, there is a feeling of like, well, now I have this thing. It did get me this job I'm doing. But what now? Like, what am I working for now? Exactly. Yeah. Tenure is the answer. Right. But see tenure, just I can dumb. tell you
2: tenure is, is, is the PhD all over again and then once you get tenure well, like now what? Uh-huh. And so, Well and we don't even really have
3: it. we don't even really have it. We we get promotion and rank, but we don't have like yeah. a permanent contract. We get renewed yeah. every year. So I guess that's what it is. I don't know. <laughs> or it's other things, you know. Yep. But I think too we can all think of areas of our life where we enjoy something but we're not competitive about it. Um hmm. when it comes to Like physical activity, I hate competitive things. I just don't enjoy those at all. I'd much rather compete, so to speak, against myself, right? Like improve my own skill or improve my own whatever. When it comes to games, I'm not competitive at all. I will let other people win. If they seem real upset about it, I'll let them win. (laughs) Like, I don't care. I just enjoy strategy and playing a game, right? So, But when it comes to academics, obviously, there is some sort of like, I've got to get that thing. I've got to get that next thing. I've got to, And I think my musicianship has been that way to a degree too. Like I have to get that next accolade, that next, you know, whatever. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm.
1: I was going to say, piggybacking on that, knowing that, let's say me at age 35 versus me at age 25, I have to say, I think I've learned more to do things less for the competitive part of it and more for the, battle against yourself improvement, the healthy way more a more healthy way of thinking about it. But I have to say, I will have students come in my office and sit right there and, you know, I do wonder what would you say, like if I could channel my Sean Powell when I have students in my office that are in that mentality more and they have this ideology of competition, what what should I say to that student? that is actually really like you can tell that it's causing them like an internal struggle and they're in not the healthiest place. Mm. Like what's something that, yeah. that I can tell them because a lot of times I wonder what do I tell this person? Like I can tell them failure is not failure. I have all my little Ben graphisms, you know, <laughs> that I like to say, but like having done this, like what would you say?
2: It's that's really difficult. You know, and I think about that a lot because on the, on the individual personal level um you know and everybody has a different relationship i mean we're all in the same sort of culture but every single individual one of us has a different way that we our psyche like interacts with this thing so it's really really hard to give like a general advice that you can apply to individual level but i would say that number one i think uh it's I think it's important to think about that this is a structural, systemic thing that all of us are dealing with, and all of us have felt inadequate because that's what the point is—the point of the system. And the system is not there's not you know a someone behind the curtain like deciding I'm going to make a system where everybody feels inadequate. That's not how it works, right? It's a no. it's a it's an ideology that works without one individual person making it work, right? It's a social structure. So I think if you understand it's like, hey, we've all been there, we're all in this, and it's natural to feel that way. Even people who I think it's really, really important to go, you may look at a classmate who is first chair in the orchestra, who is, uh, you know, on full scholarship, who was first chair all-state, who's like the darling of the studio and think, "If I could just be them, I would have no worries." And I wouldn't feel that inadequate. You may think that's true, but that person is struggling too, because they've got extreme pressure to maintain that. And if they let up at all, they're at a total failure if they slip from first chair to second chair. Right. And so to think that if you're not in this alone, we're all doing this, even if you don't think other people are, they are right. I think that's super important to, to do that. And also to get people to think about like, Hey, things don't have to be this way all the time. Like, there might be another way to approach our field. You can't do it alone. You know, you're going to have to band together with your classmates or your coworkers or your students. Uh, But I think there's, if we can give them hope to say, like, if this sucks for you, you love music, so you want to stay in music, but you really don't like this part, there are other ways that it could happen. And I think that's really important as well.
0: Yeah. So, so let's say you start to realize that there's this ideology of competition kind of behind so much of what we do. All right. And, and you're an educator. Well, what if, you know, is it's, this is, I I find myself doing this because I'm a, mental person you know I like to think about things and I can see the ideology I recognize it I see how it's a problem but do I really have to do anything about it like is it enough just for me to like know that I'm kind of superior because I can see the ideology at play (laughs) and yet still participate fully in it like (laughs) because that's the temptation (laughs) is to to recognize it still, but disavow your own activity in it. And I think you call that person, the the cynic, right? Yeah. Um, the person who looks at it cynically, mm-hmm. but still participates fully in it. So can you explain kind of how that happens and then yeah. maybe how you can move from something to something better than that? Yeah.
2: So cynicism is my chapter four and that's like kind of the whole topic of that. You sum that I position up really well. Uh, and that's the person who thinks Okay, look, I have gotta do competitions because my principal expects it or my parents or my students. And this is just what you do if you're a band director or a choir director, or whatever. You just do it. Oh, I don't really like it. This is I know this is not what Music heads about, but look, <laughs> I gotta do it. It's the gig. And then you can kind of feel that sense of like, well, it's like what Lacan calls the non-duped error, which means they they're not duped. I get it. I understand mm-hmm. that this is just a charade and like I have to play the game. Uh, but you can feel like, well, okay, I'm just doing it. I don't believe in it. But the problem with that is that is what the system relies on. It relies on people saying, okay, it's just a charade, but as long as they keep doing it, cool. Like, as long as your actions keep per- per- uh, perpetuating the system, you don't have to change anything because you can go home and feel, feel nice about yourself because are like, well, I don't really buy into it. I'm not one of those people who's like, rabidly competitive i don't really care but you're doing the exact same thing as the people that do that do <laughs> totally buy into it so the 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 outcome is totally the same and if the system and when i say the system remember there's not like a shadowy group of people that's the system if the system is literally just the inner the social interactions that we all perpetuate or sustain um so uh even though we personify the system it's not a person but uh it has to have that because if people who really like didn't didn't believe in this stopped doing it, then it would just fall apart. Right? If enough of those people did that. So it has to have people that disavow it and say, that's not me, yet yeah, I'm still doing it. To operate. And that's how our capitalist system operates, that's how competition in school music operates, that's how it works. So I think. Uh this seems simplistic. But I think we have to just focus on action. Because. If you don't think this is the right thing for students, if you don't think this is the appropriate aim for music education, and you're still doing it, well, you don't get any points for that. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's one. Except, though, it can't be individualized. Right? And I think there's a few reasons it can't be individualized. First of all, it's impossible to do, like we already talked about. You as the solo person just opting out is probably not going to work. But also, you can't... I don't think you can self-monitor your actions that way. I think you need others to help you be reflective and to keep you in check because you may think that you are really making changes and you're telling yourself that you are, and you're kind of justifying things to yourself. It's like, well, I'll just do one more, and then when we get past that, I'll do real teaching, or I'll just do it for this one year, or once we get first place at this thing, then we can stop, and you just keep kicking the can down the road, and, you, and then you retire. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no <laughs> end date. The, 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 the end point never gets there. You just keep justifying it to yourself. So I think you need others to make changes, and you need others to, to help. We need to help each other be reflective and to make real structural change. And... Yeah, until you can believe whatever you want. Like, I would rather have teachers who really are competitive and think that's what they should do, but don't do it. <laughs> They're the <laughs> other way around, right? Uh-huh. I, so I think it's, it's, it's our action. We have to focus on action outcomes, material outcomes, versus what we're telling ourselves to justify our actions. I think that's the important thing.
0: Yeah, we like to think that our truest self is what we believe, but in fact mm-hmm. it's what we do and you know our our beliefs about ourselves often hide our actions from us right like we tell ourselves we're you know a good person or we're doing this but then you know our actions may be the opposite but as long as we believe that you know we believe the story we tell ourselves about ourselves we can yeah. never look you know at our actions and say hey that's you know that's actually the material world that's what's being affected and right. we need to move beyond that yeah That is not easy to do. No, (laughs) (laughs) no.
2: I wish this was easy. I wish this was less a philosophy book and just like a how-to manual. But that's impossible to do.
0: Sorry. Yeah. But I mean, it requires this, you know, responsibility and also, you know, realizing what the goal of music education is, Mm -hmm. right? And in your last chapter, I think it's you have a very kind of simple, you know, kind of guiding principle because. People would often, I could imagine a critique of this would be like, so, you know, people can just do whatever they want, you know, you don't want any types of, um, you know, um, standards or things like that. Um, but I think kind of the guiding principle that you come down to is that you need, we need to be focused on what the students need, right? It's like, what, it's what, yeah. what's the kid? What do the kids need? If that is our driving force, then that can help us to kind of focus, stay focused while some of these things potentially change. Yeah. You know, the, I, find, I found,
2: and this is, I think anybody would tell you this. If you're writing like a critical theory or philosophy book, the hardest part to write is the ending. And it's like, so what now? It's hard. <laughs> because, um, you know, if I wrote this book and said, you know, this system's not working for all these reasons for six whole chapters. And at the end I go, well, instead do this. Well, that's (laughs) going to introduce the same sort of prescriptive hierarchical structure in a different form, and we're going to be right back where we started. And so my agenda was not to say, like, well, stop doing this because I have a system that is perfect and was much better than the system you're using. That's not my... So spoiler alert, if anyone's like expecting that at the end, it's not going to You probably
0: would have, you probably yeah. sell more books, honestly, if you... I would absolutely <laughs> sell more books. The books
2: that sell in our field are the very much like, I'm a really smart person and just do what I did. That's, sorry, to it's sad to say, but that's how it works, right? Mm-hmm. I could have, yeah. If anybody out to think I'm making money on this ad, uh, I'm not. So, if anybody's going, "Wow, I want to write a book like that to make money," uh, I got I got news for you. Hey, you're so, gonna get the note doctors bum. I guarantee. You. Uh, well, I'm you're gonna, gonna get, to get a couple sales
0: out of this. At least Any- one more
2: purchase. So yeah, yeah, that's awesome. No, I'm excited. But um, so i trying to. So the tricky thing about this is I'm trying to be dialectical, which means I'm trying to say. Uh, This system, for all the reasons I spent 50,000 words saying it's not working well, isn't. But I don't want to replace it with another hegemonic system that we all have to conform to. What I want to do is say, to allow differences to flourish. But also, here's the dialectic reversal of that. That does not mean just everybody do whatever you want and there's no responsibility and you can just do whatever. So I think we can have different types of music making, different approaches to music making in different schools and different communities, but we can't just say whatever that teacher feels like doing, just do it and use your own personal whims and just feel cool. You do have to have a guiding principle, although that guiding principle can't be super specific because then it would be, it wouldn't work for everyone. And so the guiding principle for me is just, what do students need in your community, in your class? Not what these students the world over need, but what are your students, your actual students, the people breathing air in your room need. And it's up to you to figure that out as a professional. And that could change, and you could guess wrong, mm-hmm. and you have to change again. I also don't think it means like just take a vote and whatever your students say they wanna do, just do that. Like I don't, I think that's shirking your responsibility as an educator because I think, mm-hmm. I do think you have to take into account students cultures and lives and what they're interested in but if that's all you're doing you're not moving them forward in the new things and educating them into new realms of learning and understanding so i think it has to all work together which is a really complex tangly answer but i think that's the i think if anybody gives you things something more simple just do this and it's all good i think it's just not gonna work mm-hmm. and i think you should be very suspicious of that because i think human beings are just much more complex And if we're thinking about just the United States or just even one state in the United States, there's too many variables at play to say, like, if you just do this, it's going to work for everybody and it's going to be perfect. Right. So I'm not saying don't have a system or don't have an approach, but you just have to realize, like, you can't know if that approach is right before it before you put it into action
1: with real students. Right. I've totally thought about that exact thing with like theory teaching just across the U S or something like you'll sit down at a conference and you'll have lunch with somebody and start talking about, Oh, maybe we should, you know, have this more standardized curriculum or like, you know, these objectives. And I think there's something to working towards um, a similar set of more broad goals in Mm -hmm. some respects. But then like, as you say, something that works in somebody else's class, when I try to bring it into the big class here, you know, it just wouldn't work. It it just completely would be a complete flop in a class of somebody who's doing it with 12 students or something, you know, where everybody rings their instrument and plays the scale. It's like, how would I do that with 150? You know, just basic. Like, sometimes it's just practical. Um, yeah. And sometimes it is more theoretical of what, you know, more conceptual question of what am I doing? What is my learning outcome of a certain uh, goal? But, man, I'm sure... A lot of people are going to resonate with that,
2: and I think I. One thing I really, just as an educator, just do not like. It turns me off is pedagogical zealotry, and you see that a whole lot. Like, in I know in theory you see that, but I and and I will say like in band you see that or in choir like, you know, if you go to like the band directors, uh, don't. But you could go to the band director's <laughs> Facebook page, and somebody go. What's the best way to teach like. I don't know, trumpet staccato articulation. And that will be people saying, like, this is the only way to do it and it, it, all these other ways are wrong and it, and all these other ways will cause problems and this is the only way that really works. And then you can say, Well, here's great some of the greatest trumpet players on earth who play in like symphony orchestras don't do it that way, so therefore you're that's incorrect. Right? Like <laughs> like they've never heard of that and they're amazing. So like The pedagogical, like you have to do it this way. This is the only way to teach, you know, counting. You have to do counting this way, and if you don't, students get all screwed up. And it's like, no. Before that system was invented, there were people who could count and were amazing musicians. Like, like I'm very suspicious on people saying like my like, you know, there's never going to be a Powell method anything i can promise you that's not your secret because
0: and i Once you know again, and, and I, you're losing out on money
2: sure. i know well, I, I am losing out on money and uh congrats to you if you made a lot of money on your method tm trademark but that's not me and you know i think I, I don't teach the class anymore but for many years i taught like band methods for like seniors who are about to the ghosting teaching like how to be a band director band ensemble methods classes and i love doing that But I think some of my students get a little frustrated because I never said like, okay, we're going to learn to do this and this is the only way to do it and here's how you do it step by step. I would give them multiple ways or I would give them like an approach that I have used, I know that works. But I'm like, I always tell them like, folks, if you go and go to student teaching and you have your cooperating teacher does it a different way and you think it works better, throw my thing out, like forget it. Or if you go to a clinic and they introduce a new way and you think that's better, I don't care. I'm giving you a way to do it. Like, I do believe in giving students a way to do something. So, you know, my <laughs> class was not just like, just do whatever you want and see what works for you. Congrats. Like, I don't do that. <laughs> right? But I do say, well, here's a way, but it's not the way. It's a way. And if you come up with a better way, see me at a conference as a an alum and tell me, hey, you know that thing? I have an improvement and I'll use it. Cool. Like, I just don't believe dogmatism is a good thing in teaching. I just don't
3: no i agree we're all different we're all different teachers for starters the way that we like manage our classrooms the way we manage our curriculum all of those things but also i think about like when you said you have to do what's best for the students in front of you like paul ben and i have completely different situations and we represent three people from three universities in like a really small part of texas but I'm at this small private school. I'm the one who's teaching 12 students that Ben mentioned, you know. Yeah. And yeah. they're all most of them are like singers and rock guitar players. I don't we don't even have an instrumental program. I have my own set of like unique joys and challenges. And the same is true for Paul who's got music therapy students and you know, all sorts of other unique aspects of his program for Ben who's teaching 200 people at a time. We all have our own stuff. Of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah. So how
0: can we, you know, as college faculty work in solidarity? Because that's kind of been something that you've been hitting on is that it has to be this collective, you know, you can't just be a lone wolf and try to change the system. So how can, you know, most of our listeners are probably in, you know, higher ed, um, but we're, you know, we're working with students who have gone through the K through 12 system. Um, But how can we, you know, work as allies to try to change this system?
2: Great question. I think the way I try to approach it for myself is to say, and you know, you're theory teachers, but you're all teacher educators because you have future teachers in your class and you're part of their education as a teacher. Um, And I think one thing concretely that we can do in higher ed is give them a space to have conversations about this because I think we're, we're in a position, a really good position to see what's happening, to understand it. We've been in that world. We have our students. We're plugged in. We, we've been there ourselves as students. So we know what's going on. We can kind of see that, but we're not directly entangled in that consequence. Right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So you, we can put ourselves out there. We're not risking... Like if I, and I've done this recently, like if I have a meet, host a meeting with some teachers who want to have conversations about this and want to express their reservations and the things that they wish they could change, like my, I'm not going to get called into the principal's office the next day, right? I'm not, yeah. I'm, I'm cool, right? And so I think that's sort of a privileged position that we're in to be able to yeah. see what's happening, understand it, speak that language, but not ha- be tied to the consequence of questioning it um, and just providing a space for that uh, dialogue between teachers I think is really a valuable thing that we can do. And for our undergrads that are going to be teachers, I think just a really valuable thing is to just bring this up. Because, again, it's ideological. It's not something most people are consciously thinking about. It's something that needs to be brought to their attention. Like, hey, did, have you ever thought about and, and by definition, those students that are in our classes have thrived in this system and want to keep doing it or they wouldn't be there,
0: mm-hmm.
2: right? So it's, the selection bias is very strong, okay? So, but just to say, you know, and and not leading with, hey, you know that system that you love and thrived in and you want to keep doing for your career? It was terrible and you should stop doing that. <laughs> like, that's a bad approach, okay? But I would say, hey, folks, let's talk about the structure of our school music program let's talk about the role competition plays and if there might be just ha, j, I, i've done that in classes and just even with like freshmen and they're like wait a minute what are you talking about <laughs> and like you expose them to like well maybe this is the role that this plays and maybe it could it's doing other things that are unintended and i think some of those things can be super eye-opening because it's just not something they maybe consciously even thought about before yeah. so i think it's really important
0: Mm -hmm. yeah well this this has been a treat Sean to chat with you about your book Um, I thoroughly recommend it to all you listeners out there to go buy a copy of it Um, it's again it's called The Ideology of Competition in School Music Uh, but before we go uh, we like to just ask our guests you know um, you know, if you want to be found on the internet, you know, where could people find you, um, if they want to reach out to you or, or learn more about what you're doing. And then, you know, because we are participants in this capitalistic culture yeah, right. that believes in perpetual progress, you know, what are you doing now? What book are you working on next? You know, what's, <laughs> what's the next project? What's going to be the thing that's going to fill that void in you? All right. Yeah. <laughs> You see, I can't escape it, right? That's what I
2: mean there. So, well, so if I, if you want to find me on the internet, uh, I guess the best place is Twitter. I'm gonna call it Twitter. I don't care what it's called now. Uh, it's just Powell underscore Sean, and it's the Irish Sean, S E A N. Um, so hit me up there. That'd be great. Uh, I actually do have another book in the work. Well, it's not. I have lots of notes. I have like a whole bunch of notes have a general idea of what it's going to be. And I think it's it's more of a, uh, taking some of these themes about what I think music education could look like that is different everywhere but has sort of a universal common bond. Uh, so I think that's that's going to be something I do here in the next couple years. Um, the weird thing about books is, even though this just came out in March, like I finished it, like I, I turned in the final manuscript in January of 2022... So it seems really new, but I've had been done with it for a while. And so I think I'm ready to start kind of going to the next thing. So in the next few years, I'll let you know.
0: (laughs) You just made it to the end of another episode of Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe and review the podcast. And you can always reach us at notedoctorspodcast at gmail.com with comments, questions or show ideas.